Good day, and welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension podcast, University of Minnesota CropCast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Nikolai, with the University of Minnesota Extension. Uh, my co-host today, again, is Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension specialist in soybeans. Uh, Seth, soybeans are continuing to grow in Minnesota, uh, and uh, they're up R1 and beyond, but I've noticed this so far uh, this summer, they're not very tall, and it doesn't seem that we've got a great canopy out there. What do you see when you travel around the state of Minnesota? Yeah, the soybean. I mean, certainly since we've had some rain, uh, things look a lot better. Uh, it shows you what soybean can do when it does get a little bit of rain. They were really hunkered down early on, I think, conserving moisture. And, well, because they had very little moisture, and so things were a little bit slow. Um, uh, but things are really cranking along, and so we're really starting to canopy now but of course like you said we're we're past r1 uh well past r1 now and and uh, so we would hope to have a little bit better canopy by now uh i still see one of the you know we had some emergence issues with dry weather uh dry soils but i think probably one of the biggest surprises for us this year was iron deficiency chlorosis uh, in a in a much wider range than we've seen in the past so a lot of farmers in counties that really don't see much of this issue um, saw it poke up this year, so a lot of calls on that. So that that makes the crop look even um, a little bit worse and ragged, raggedier. Um, and uh, you know, this whole thing I think is going to probably end up blowing up on us for weed control and things like that late season. Now that we've had the rain, the weeds are going to come. We don't have good canopy, so it's I think it's. Farmers have had trouble controlling weeds and soybeans, and I think it's just going to be a, a, even a tougher year this year. Do we still have an opportunity for a yield bump here in the month of August? Sometimes we get those rains, uh, and certainly they oftentimes help, but even with these shorter beans and the challenges we've had right now, are you still semi-optimistic? For sure. Uh, I mean, if we have good rain from now out, I think we're in really good shape. I don't think we should have real, any real significant problems even. We could... We could do really, really well, but it's going to take. We have some catching up to do, and uh, we don't have we don't have much um, soil water in the bank, uh, so it's going to take um, it's going to take continued rainfall. So we're going to need several, you know, some some decent rainfalls and more than these just little popcorn uh, events around the state to really keep us keep us going here. So, but but soybean is, you know, obviously we always talk about how soybean August, September makes our beans and it's absolutely true. So if we have, if we have good weather at the end, I think there'll be no problem. Speaking about good weather at the end, we talk about, you know, soybeans across the landscape. Uh, we really have a, a unique opportunity here today, Seth. Uh, we have one of our neighboring states experts in the soybean production. I want to bring in our guest, Dr. Sean Connolly from the University of Wisconsin. He's extension specialist in soybeans and in small grains, so he's wearing two hats. Um, and uh, at this point in time, Sean, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the folks a little bit about uh, where you're from, uh, background, and, and how do things look on the other side of the Mississippi River? Sure. Thanks, uh, Dave and Seth, for having me here today. So, yeah, so I'm basically your prototypical cheese head. I grew up in a dairy farm, milked cows till I was 18. Um, went to UW-Madison and I was on a trajectory to go to veterinary school. But after my first year in college, uh, when I got straight C's, I pretty much figured out they weren't going to let me into vet school. So I 
took a semester off and <clears throat> figured out what, what I wanted to do with my life. And I came back and refocused in agronomy. And then my then I really wanted to be and work for a herbicide company and be a field development rep. Then we all know what happened in 1996. Roundup Ready Beans were launched and all of those jobs dried up really quickly. So I decided to stick around and get my, my master's and PhD. So I did get all my degrees at UW-Madison and my my running joke is I should be a corn breeder. I'm so inbred since I did everything here at UW-Madison. Um, from there, I went to Mizzou and Purdue. And then back in 07, I started back here at UW-Madison. So I've been back here a little over 15 years. Um, but I had a really good opportunity to to, uh, to work and grow the program here at, at, at UW-Madison. I got a great crew and great collaborators, you know, even for all the flack that I give Seth. You know, he's a great person to work with. And We've had a really good good team of us soybean agronomists across the country, much better than those corn agronomists. Those guys don't know how to get their stuff together, but at least at least we do on the soybean side. Well, certainly uh, we want to take some time to talk a little bit about these research programs. But first of all, we need a little bit of a crop report uh, for this year in, in 2023. Uh, we know that the overall in the U.S., we have uh, a lot more corn production than people estimated earlier. Uh, soybean production in terms of acreage was down. Prices are up. So um, can these Wisconsin farmers make money growing soybeans this year? How's the crop look? Yeah, I think we're kind of the same boat as y'all are in Minnesota. We Thank goodness we had a really um, full water profile. Otherwise, we'd really be in trouble. We haven't really gotten much rain in the past seven weeks. This last week, a good rain event hit most of the state and at least brought the crop along. But I would concur with Seth, we're still fine. We're about the R2, going into R3 growth stage for most of our soybean crop. And if we get an inch of rain a week for, you know, for the rest of the growing season, we'll be just fine. But we, if we get a two week slant or stint here in August, I think we're really gonna suffer. We're gonna take quite a bit of bushels off the top end. So, and again, the same thing with weed control, challenges or worries we have with a poor canopy and if we get a few rainfall events that water hemp is going to come on and grow four times as fast as that soybean crop will grow and we'll have to be fighting that so again i guess we could just say ditto the only thing we don't have here that you all enjoy is idc so thankfully you guys can keep that in minnesota yeah we'll uh we'll keep it over here it's fine it's 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 nice to have to have some ownership over something over here we can we can work with the folks in North Dakota and South Dakota and a few in Iowa on, on IDC and be happy with that. So I, um, I know you've been doing a little bit, playing around a little bit with some double cropping, soybeans after some other crops. You've also been doing some work with cover crops, but it's been a real challenging year. Which I, I think it shows us, you know, the risk that we have in soybean when we, we do have some dry early starts. What, what are you seeing in some of those studies over there? Yeah, we, we had a real challenge as we are going to see with many of the growers across the upper Midwest where that, especially going into cereal rye, we we're trying to plant green and that cereal rye really did an effective job of removing a lot of moisture, even more so from that soil profile. And we planted into dry soil and we still got some plots that haven't germinated and emerged yet. And I think we're going to see that in those that did and I know we've worked with some farmers that if they're able to get enough down pressure down and get it into like right at that um, that moisture line, which would have probably been three plus inches, 
And some we have very variable stands and very variable soybean growth stages because some took off right away. Some sat there and, and some just germinated and died. So I think we have some really thin stands on top of that. So I think what we're really going to see is a challenge with cover crop adoption next year. I, uh, you know, farmers always remember what happened the year before. And I think when we see a lot of crop failures, you know, the coffee talk is going to go. And I think we're probably going to see a downtick in cover crop acres next year. That's just my, my thought. Uh, but we all knew this would happen, happen. You know, you get a dry year of cover crops is just crappy crop physiology 101. You know, there's no moisture. It's not going to grow. Yeah. It's, it's just seemed like a tough year, but I, I even noticed, uh, I made a trip down to Iowa, uh, on Saturday for a family deal. And, and, um, the, the no-till soybeans look pretty tough this year. What do your no-till soybeans look like over there? I thought maybe we, you know, you hope that maybe some of the no-till might conserve some moisture and things might look a little bit better, but how do no-till soybeans look in, in uh, Wisconsin this year? We, we've seen similar challenges, and I think a part of that, again, was planting date and when we were able to get in and hit that soil moisture line. And I think another thing that we cha- have a challenge in Wisconsin is I don't think we got really any frost um, we had a lot of snowfall, you know, freeze-thaw temperatures, and I think there's a lot of the sins from last year's harvest time, some compaction-related issues that we didn't have that freeze-thaw action. But even in our no-till fields, we're seeing those wheel tracks show up, and we're getting pictures of K deficiency in these wheel tracks where we have compaction. So I think that's another thing that's that's on top of it. You know, sometimes in the north here, we get blessed with that freeze-thaw action that can forgive some of our, our sins from harvesting wet. And I think we're going to be, we're seeing some of that pop out again this, this, you know, this growing season. So when you look across the acreage in Wisconsin, Sean, how would you divide out the percentages, what I would call, you know, conventional growing soybeans versus some in the, uh, in the no-till, uh, minimum till um, cover crop area? How are things looking? Is there, is a trend and obviously you know we just talked about the fact that moisture is going to play into some of these decisions but are are folks um, going with certain things and then at the expensive equipment they're going to stay with it or how, how do you see those percentages lining out well I don't, I don't really have any data here dave but i've been hearing a lot of negative things about uh like um oh what do you call that that's true tillage vertical till I've heard some real horror stories about some vertical till acres out there this year that, you know, people, farmers need to think about that, again, given the dry environments. We've had a challenge, and I don't know if you've all picked that up in Minnesota, but we've seen some issues with our, our no-till beans really being behind in terms of growth stage physiologically and not yielding. There's what our conventional beans are, so we've been trying to look at are there things that we can do in a no-till situation to try and mitigate some of that yield penalty. And by that we're talking, it depends on the year, but we can see three to five bushel yield difference between no-till beans and conventional beans. And that's, you know, we're not trying to go out and promote the plow or promote tillage, but really I also have to understand there's some something going on there that we need to figure out. Can we <clears throat> at least figure out a way to shrink that yield difference between no-till and conventional till to, to balance it out so that even if we might lose a bushel or two, it, doesn't pay for tillage because the fuel cost offsets each other. So I think those are some things that are real and we're seeing across. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with 
Powell. We've had record corn yields for the last, what, eight years or seven out of eight years. We've got all that biomass out there and we're telling farmers to plant early into this heavy biomass. It's cold, it's wet, can't, you know, unless you have really good equipment, get through that. So that's, I think we see some beans struggling in that sense too. So I think it's kind of multi-layered effect and we really got to figure out how to handle this corn, this corn residue and uh, don't, I don't know if the, you know, the short corn is the answer or I haven't seen anything there. I'm not really going to talk talk to that because I don't know if I've ever seen any university data that shows how that compares to, to normal corn. Or, but again, I think there's something we need to really think about in terms of handling this biomass and residue in these high corn systems and how that affects that subsequent soybean crop. Yeah, it's it's and it's both from a yield standpoint and knowing, you know, you understand farmer psychology as well as I do that these early season, um, you know, this time of year, these these the no-till fields just look behind and and you see corn stalks standing up in those. And it's just I think farmers really react to that and really have a challenge. They know this is a good thing. They know it's the right thing to do, but it's uh, it offers a real aesthetic challenge and and that's real emotional for them and and to move not only for them to move into that or stay into that or for to stay in that uh role but or that type of a of a production but to you know try to convince farmers to to go that direction is difficult and i and i appreciate your comments about vertical vertical tillage too because you're exactly right that's farmers are really trying to find ways to incorporate some of that uh, residue, but you've got so much, so many tons of, of, uh, corn stover out there. And if you're only getting it in the top couple inches and then you're compacting right below that, um, you're planting your soybeans right into that fluff, uh, on top. That's, you know, only, only a little bit of soil in there. And, and, uh, it's a, it's a real challenge. So I think we'd probably better move on with some questions. I, I we're really interested to know what what projects you're working on over there, and what's you know I brought up the thing about cover crops and and um, and um, and uh, second crop soybeans, uh, but what um, a double cropping. So what other stuff you have going on in Wisconsin? What's exciting? What's interesting? Where are you where are you going? What are you excited about? Yeah, I think I think the coolest thing that I think has really got my my excitement driving the most is this whole data-driven project, looking at um, machine learning algorithms, AI tools. I think that's really <clears throat> got a lot of people excited about it. And I think the first thing we're really trying to dive in and, you know, Seth, you're involved in this and, and many of us in our North Central region are. And for those of you that may not be familiar with this, this is our data-driven project uh, funded and sponsored by the North Central Soybean Research Program, so some checkoff dollars. And what we're really trying to do is go out and collect agronomic data from farmers, you know, management production practices, and then we're getting their yield monitor data. We can bring that in and, and this all goes into a platform that we've built and it's pretty seamless. It's all online. You can just fill out the survey, dump your your yield monitor online. And then once we have all your GPS locations, we can pull in your soil type, your weather, your environmental, you know, rainfall patterns and whatnot. What we're really trying to do is develop a, a model, a system where ultimately a farmer can log into our, our system and drop a pin in a field and they'll be given X number, 10 to 20 different management decisions that they're willing to change. You know, maybe a farmer doesn't want to change the row spacing or tillage, whatever, <clears throat> but we give them several options. And then we can run like a hypothetical, you know, scenario for that specific farm field. 
And then we could say, this is what you normally do, or this is what you're doing in your field. And if you made these three or four production changes, this is what your maximum yield or maximum profit could be from adopting these strategies. So we're kind of in that phase right now that um, we're loading the system. And then in 2024, we're going to launch the, the model and ask farmers out there to kind of work with us, you know, be those uh, those leaders <clears throat> in, in the industry. And, you know, just give us a couple fields, drop a pen, run the scenarios, uh, run these side-by-sides on us and let us know how the model's working. And I think this would be a really good tool that farmers can use because I mean, we all know this step, you know, Dave, in Minnesota, we're in Wisconsin, farmers have probably thousands of potential management decision choices they can do in a given year. And by those choices, I mean the interactions, planting date, variety, maturity, trait, seed treatment, biologicals, timing of fungus, all these things. And a farmer basically gets what, 50 years, 50 experiments, which what I call their growing seasons. You get about 50 of them in a, a year and you try things Farmers always tweak in the production system, but I think what this will allow us to do is use kind of a um, community research approach to be able to bring all this information in, have it tied to weather conditions, soil types, and give farmers, you know, this these products and your soil type have the best opportunity for developing a positive mm-hmm. ROI. So you kind of, yeah, citizen science is a word, word I was thinking of to be able to pool our information together and you know in a non-competitive manner and drive the industry forward so I, that's really what i'm excited about we you know if any of you remember the six million dollar man we have the technology i think we have the technology now we just need to get some of the buy-in from from the farmers because that's what's really got me excited because you know I think this AI can go really wrong too. And I think that's another important thing that we as scientists and the academic, you know, land grant university can look at this stuff and say, you know, this is just a bunch of quack stuff that's never going to work. Or there is some merit here and how this is how to utilize it. So it's, it's really cool that you can answer and ask research questions, but also help ask and answer some very applied production on farm questions too. So that's that's what's driving me right now, Seth and Dave. So that's yeah. yeah, it's it's a cool project. I you know I just want to you know circle back on a p- couple points. I think one of them, and I, they're both kind of correlated, but this idea that AI is our savior, I think, is an interesting one because uh, it 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 kind of reminds us of all the work that we've done at universities historically, because AI basically just utilizes. It goes out to the web and 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 harvests data from other places and recycles it and, and repackages it. And I think we've always claimed at the universities that that um, you know we can be this primary source of information. And without without the research that goes into this, the background for a lot of the um, publications and recommendations, we that, you know the farmers would be behind. And I think just from classical agronomy research, um, but then from your data. A driven project, I think, you know, it also is really important. I had a farmer ask me, I, he said, well, what will I gain by filling out your survey? And I said, well, specifically, you'll learn, you'll, you'll actually gain a lot because the more data comes from your region and, and the closer, closer the data is generated from your farm, uh, the better that data should represent, uh, the, the models will represent you uh, going forward. So 
I mean, farmers really have a, a self-interest in this. If they can provide us information from their own production fields that'll feed into your models, it'll really help. Those models then will reflect better upon those, um, those areas. If we have big gaps out there in production uh, zones where we don't collect a lot of data, then we just will we'll be extrapolating a lot of things. You know, in addition to this AI project, uh, Sean, are there other things that you are involved with or have graduate students in terms of highlighted projects uh, this year or ongoing in Wisconsin? Yeah, so unfortunately I have some, I'm, I'm blessed to have good, smart grad students and that's what I usually do. I always hire people smarter than me and I don't want to put a dig on my students to say that's not hard, but because they are a lot smarter than me, but they have really found their interest in things. And one of them is working on developing some double crop uh, recommendations for farmers in Wisconsin. Many of you may be aware now. I don't know how much of Minnesota is covered with this, but almost all of Wisconsin is, is that uh, RMA has approved um, crop insurance for double crop soybean after, in our case, winter wheat are the primary acres, but it could probably be after dry beans or snap beans that come off too. And just be able to go in and um, really fine tune our recommendations. Uh, last year, of course, it all frosted and died on us. So, but that's good information. We're trying to kind of tweak the system to figure out how early do we need to get our wheat out <clears throat> in order to get our soybean in, in order to have it, you know, at least some type of a yield potential to come off of that crop. And I would expect, you know, in a normal year, whatever that is. Double crop beans in Wisconsin can go 20 to 35 bushels. I think that's the potential. So farmers can kind of pencil that out. And I do know if you can go in and get some treated seed. And I'm not a big proponent of planting treated seed on a you know on an and on an every acre basis, but generally the treated seed is discounted pretty heavily at that time of the season, just because you know we don't save soybean seed. It usually has to go into a landfill and or has to get get gone um, and the companies usually have to pay to uh, dispose of that treated seed. So I would ask farmers to be pretty aggressive in working with their seeds people to get some treated seed later in the season. You can probably get it for half to a third of the price. And then, you know, ultimately if it doesn't work, we have some green cover, we have some green manure out there, something to hold, hold that uh, soil in place. So again, I don't think it's a, a total loss, even if you do have, a, a crop failure. So that's one project. Um, another project I have going on is trying to ask and answer this question about how, what can we do to no-till soybean in order to kind of um, have an, you know, mitigate this yield penalty with conventional till soybean. Um, last year, we have preliminary data, and I don't like to talk about it too much just because I don't want a whole bunch of farmers doing this, but we found going out and putting about 30 pounds of N on in these heavy no-till systems. Basically, we just removed that yield penalty between no-till and conventional beans. Again, the N is really low. A two N is two. So I'm not telling farmers to go out and put a whole bunch of urea. Or we already have N-related issues in our cropping systems on the corn side of things on our soybean, but we did see something there. Um but then I think also these projects we have for Science for Success are really cool as well. And for those of you that are not uh, familiar with Science for Success, but this is a, a national program led by Dr. Rachel Van 
down at uh, NC North Carolina, uh, NC State University, and I make sure I get the right one, or otherwise I'll get in trouble from um, Dr. Van. But then Seth, go and, Tar Heels. Uh, <laughs> go Tar Heels. <laughs> exactly, go Tar Heels. No, <laughs> uh, I'm sure we're gonna get a um, a text about that one, Seth. But and then Dr. Uh, Laura Lindsay at Ohio. So we're kind of the core team, if you will, working with Dr. Van, who's the leader. We've got some really cool things, sulfur, micronutrients on soybeans. Now we're working on biologicals. So after this growing season, we'll have roughly 100, almost 150 uh, site years of data looking at biologicals, seed treatments on the soybean side of things. And we'll be able to hopefully fine tune where and when and if these products work. So that'll be a really cool resource that, that we have. Um, in addition to some other, other projects, a new one we're starting out. I was just texting my grad student this morning that uh, we're going to be looking at desiccants in the north. We don't really think about spraying desiccants. Uh, it's typically a production practice that they do in the south to, to kind of even out harvest and get those soybeans out before that hurricane season comes in. And they have a lot of soil or seed quality related issues. And Seth can speak to that as he runs that program and gets all those seed samples from the south where we have a lot more challenges with seed quality. But we're going to really look at can we, is it worth our time to really utilize in these um, desiccants in the north? Um, so it's another cool project just to, to, to look at and try and develop a lot of data points across the country to see where one may fit. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. I think it's been a long time coming. I know Seth and Pella Peterson kind of probably kicked this joint projects off probably 15, 20 years ago with some of the initial funding through USB. And I think we've grown to, what are we up to now, Seth? 28, 30 uh, colleagues across the country that are part of the science or success team. So it's exciting. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I really am a big believer in this large number of environments, you know, under common protocols so that we can we can start to, you know, really look at what's what's driving these factors. And it's, you know, it's it's unfortunate we didn't get a lot of positive results on the, the biologicals the first year. We really thought that there'd be some locations that would really hit for us. And so it's it'll be really interesting to look this next year. And I think the the uh, desiccant trial is another one where we just have a lot of locations. So we have all those environments we can look at and we can say this is when and and why these things worked or or didn't work or hurt our yields or uh, improved harvestability relative to others based on the weather that happened after that or the latitude or, or you know, the, lo the state that they're in. So <clears throat> just a lot of value in those. You know, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, science for success for both of you, uh, if people aren't familiar with this, since this obviously is an audio-only podcast, uh, if they get on a search engine or on their computer, what should they type in and search? Because we have an, uh, some wonderful fact sheets that have come out of this program. Maybe mention how, to, how people can obtain them. Yeah, I think the best place to, if you want to go to, I think just, just Googling Science for Success and Soybean will probably get you there. But the Soybean Research Information Network, so Soybean Research Information Network, it's S-R-I-N. And I don't know, is that .net or .com, Sean? I don't remember. Um, Soybean Research Information Network, and that's um, that's housed at Iowa Soybean, but it's it's a network uh, that includes uh, North uh, the North Central Soybean Research Program and USB-funded projects 
a lot of really nice database of research projects, but uh, there's an agronomy section with uh, Science for Success, and it has our fact sheets that we've developed. There's videos. Uh, there's a Twitter um, account, and Sean did a nice little 30-second video with a big drone hanging over him in the field last week. It was quite nice. So there's a, uh, it's, it's nice to keep up. If you're interested in what's happening around the country, uh, we've got folks that are, that are um, posting, um, you know, what the crop looks like in, you know, in, in Arkansas or, or uh, North Carolina or, you know, Virginia. So um, uh, that's, a, that's another resource for us. Well, Sean, any um, other things that you would like to mention here today as we kind of close out in terms of looking to the future, things that you would like to do? If you had uh, maybe the unlimited budget, so to speak, but uh, w- what are the needs and, and where do you want to go? Yeah, I think w- one of the areas we're really trying to kind of focus in on now is at least with, within our program. And this kind of lends into a joint uh, NIFA USB funded project where we're looking at uh, it's called uh, carbon farming, looking at the role that soybean plays in carbon sequestration, uh, nitrogen cycling. I think that's a couple of big topic areas that I'm interested in, really kind of understand, because if we think about historically how we've managed and looked at these corn soybean systems, they've been in these silos, and it's just kind of the artifact of how the funding agencies work for both the checkoff of both corn and soybean. They're kind of set up to be in these silos, but we know that it's a system and how we can interact and utilize and these cover crops in these systems or how we can understand the nitrogen cycling or carbon sequestration in in these systems i think is is a very important role i think these are things that we as soybean agronomists the ag community should be leaders in and not this kind of step stepping back and and poo pooing what you know you might be reading in these uh these journals where people are just gleaning the the internet finding data, running these simulation models, but they really don't have any boots in the ground application of what this means. So I think that's a big area that we, as you know, as an ag community, should should be in because these challenges aren't going to go away. You know, I know we don't want like to talk about climate change, and I'm not going to actually talk about climate change, even though I just said it. But we do realize there's some changes in in weather that are out there. If short term, long term, you know, time has yet to be, but we have hypoxia, we have all these challenges. And I think this is something, a good place for us as agronomists to work with crop modelers and you know, even even environmentalists, if you will, to kind of maybe tame some of the, uh, the, <clears throat> the thoughts out there just to kind of bring it back to have the boots on the ground reality. So that's kind of, if I'm looking over the next probably 15 years of my, my career, what I got left, I have working in, you know, you still got to do agronomy work because as Seth said earlier, that feeds the model. We don't have this basic agronomy work. It does not feed these, these AIs and use this to train and inform us of new research ideas and working on this, this climate-related uh, sustainability challenges. So that's where I'm going to be, good, bad, or indifference um, until the next big thing pops up, and who knows what, what, what that'll be. But I think it's good to have good colleagues like uh, Seth Nave in the north and others around around the country to work with and bounce ideas off because it's always fun working with Seth because I do know that he always has an opinion. So you just ask him and he will give you a thought. So, yeah. 
Well, only we'll, only with you, Sean. Only with you. <laughs> last last point to close out. Just mention uh, your webpage if people want to go back and see what the that general agronomy work, research, and so forth, Wisconsin. Uh, what is your webpage entitled? Sure. Uh, my webpage is www.coolbean.info, and on my Twitter at BadgerBean. So every research paper, everything we do, gets shoved on on the webpage and just and pushed out via via Twitter. So feel free to join and and, and uh, kind of join in and uh, you know participate as when Seth comes across Minnesota next year and ask for your survey data. You know, please join in, join in the revolution. I say that help us do this. So please, please, please. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Uh, we really appreciate you taking uh, the time on today and filling us in a little bit about what's happening in, in Wisconsin. And uh, it's a it's a really fun to work here with uh, uh, Seth on this type and keep him uh, in, in terms of navigating the right way. And, and you're helping to provide that guidance for us. So we, we do appreciate that. Any last words, Seth? I'll, otherwise, we're going to sign her off. No, I think we're good. It's a good night and uh, fun to chat with you this morning, um, Sean. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good one. Thank you very much.